0: Hello. Welcome to New Books in Secularism, a podcast where we talk to authors about their new secularism themed books. I'm your hostess, Annie Sepukaya, and today we are going to talk to Catherine Stewart, author of The Good News Club, The Christian Right's Stealth Assault on America's Children. Catherine is a journalist and author who has recently written for the New York Times, Reuters, The Guardian, and Alternet. In this book, She shares the important research she has done on Good News Clubs, which are a ministry of the Child Evangelism Fellowship. She found in her research that though they portray themselves as a benign after-school Bible study program, they are actually aggressively and purposely sectarian. Their real goal, she discovers, is to sneak into and create a stronghold in public schools, to push their brand of religion through peer-to-peer proselytizing, and ultimately to take back public schools for Christ while promoting discrimination and divisiveness along the way. Thank you so much for being on our show. Um, today we are talking about your book, The Good News Club, The Christian Right's Stealth Assault on America's Children. Um, so in this book, you pretty much argue that The Good News Club isn't good news at all. Um, so what is this club, and how did you come to know of it?
1: Well, I first learned about The club, uh, the Good News clubs when I was living in Santa Barbara, California. I had a daughter in kindergarten, and uh, my little boy was about a year old. And um, I learned that a group calling itself the Good News Club was coming to our public elementary school. And uh, the group acquired um, parental permission to join. It called itself Bible Study uh, from a non-denominational perspective. And my first thought was that this just wasn't a big deal. Um, I figured, you know, let the parents who want their kids to learn about the Bible sign them up. You know, I'm a strong supporter of free speech. And I also support the idea idea of teaching the Bible in public schools from a non-sectarian standpoint, as history or literature or anthropology. But then I started to hear stories from parents around town whose kids went to schools where Good News Clubs had recently been established. Apparently there were four Good News Clubs uh, in town already. And I started to hear stories about how kids attending the club, and we're talking about little kids here, they, they uh, they would start going to the club and then they'd start targeting their peers for what I can only describe as faith-based bullying. Um, I want to tell you a story about a little girl we uh, knew, uh, Zoe. She was on the playground when her six-year-old classmate, Ashley, came up to her and said, you don't believe in Jesus, so you're going to go to hell. Now, um, Ashley had just started attending a good news club, and she determined that uh, Zoe uh, was a a member of a minority faith uh, that didn't believe in Jesus. So Zoe uh, looked at her little six-year-old friend and said, well, that's not true. And things got a little uh, heated. The girls started to argue, and their teacher overheard the exchange and decided to use this as a teachable moment. Different religions, she explained to the kids, have different perspectives on these different issues. So Zoe was fine with this. But Ashley, the little girl attending a good news club, she was devastated. She, She started to cry. She said, how can that be? They, How can they lie to us in school? I know it must be true because they taught it to me in school, and they don't teach things in school that aren't true. How can they lie to us in school? Now, -hmm. this little exchange um, gets to the heart of the trouble with the Good News Clubs. I don't have a problem with kids talking about their religion um, with their friends at school, but I do have a problem with Ashley believing that her particular religious beliefs are sanctioned by and endorsed by the public school. And I began to realize that that perception on Ashley's part is no accident. Um, It soon became uh, clear to me that the real purpose of Good News Clubs, which are um, have a very fundamentalist take on um, Christianity, um, they're sort of in that fundamentalist strand, they seek to convey the false but totally unavoidable impression in very young kids that their uh, religion is endorsed by the public school. And that's why they're so insistent on establishing themselves in public schools. Um, good News Clubs at our school and others um, come into the school um, often before the bell rings uh, with treats and balloons and laying out spreads of cupcakes and candy. They know very well that little kids cannot distinguish between an activity that takes place in a school and one that is sponsored by the school. Frankly, as a parent, uh, when I looked at all the after-school activities until the arrival of the Good News Club, I just assumed they were all sanctioned by and had the stamp of approval of the public school. I figured that's why they're in the school because the school must want them must want them to be here. Right. In, in fact, many uh, public schools, including ours in Santa Barbara, really did not welcome the arrival of Good News Club uh, to our after-school um, program. Um, in fact
0: this is not something that came out of a spontaneous expression of faith from the community.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. Um it's hard to know exactly how they arrived, but um because often what good news clubs do, um good news clubs are by the way sponsored by an organization called the Child Evangelism Fellowship. And how they typically work is that they um uh p- partner with a church that's sort of theologically aligned with their mission and the church members get their kids who are already, by the way, attending church and getting religious instruction in the church to be the first group of Good News Club's kids at that school. But at our public school, which actually had a very large evangelical population, a number of families who are, you know, evangelical families, they they really thought the Good News Club was not right for our public schools. because we had a very small public school, very diverse in terms of religion, um, all the different Christian denominations, some Jews, some Muslims, some Buddhists, uh, non-theists, and um, and they knew that the Good News Club's arrival would not be welcome news for most of us in the community. So they met with the Good News Club leaders before the Good News Club re- leaders came to our public school, and they said, may we offer you, they said, we know you mean well, you know, um, we agree with you you know, theologically, but you're just not right for our public school. But we'd like to offer you free space and actually better space in this beautiful evangelical church, literally next door to the school. I mean, the, the entrance was 40 feet away. It was Montecito Covenant Church. It's probably one of the most beautiful evangelical churches in America. It's, I wish you could see a picture of this gorgeous church in the Spanish style with sun-splashed, you know, um, you know, white stucco and beautiful gardens. I mean, who wouldn't want to be in that church? And the Good News Club leaders declined, saying that the public school was where they wanted to be. And they know very well that um, by being in the public school, they're going to not only make kids think that the religion that they're preaching is endorsed by the school, but they're going to use the proximity of other kids to try to convert them. And every Good News Club um, training I attended, uh, kids were offered points and prizes and sometimes even candy for recruiting their peers to the club. And this seems to be the part of the Good News Clubs that's most disturbing to parents. Look, I don't have a problem with people, you know, uh, inculcating uh, their uh, children and their form of faith, but I do have a problem with them using the public school to tell their kids to go out and try and, you know, recruit my kids or other kids to the club. In fact, um, a father who attended one of my events in Pasadena, California, he and another woman had just attended the first Good News Club training, um, I'm sorry. Session in their kids, public school, and the teacher was telling the kids at that school. Um, now, if you want to, be- if you want to live, you need to believe in Jesus. And I want you to go right now to the playground and find a friend, and tell them that if they want to live, they need to believe in Jesus. And then you come back here and tell me what happened. So the Good News Club leaders are actually using the kids attending the clubs to try to recruit their peers. Wow, that's
0: that's. Appalling. <laughs> and and how, how do they get away with this? I mean, isn't there a separation of church and state?
1: Well, what happened to the separation of church and state? That's a good question. This is all the result of a 2001 Supreme Court decision in which um, the, uh, um, uh, it's called Good News Club versus Milford Central School, in which the courts uh, ruled that um, the activities of the Good News Club um, are really uh, protected by the Free Speech Clause of the First Amendment, in doing so, they, they, they basically said that you know um, the, the, the establishment clause of the you know First Amendment, which is Congress should make no law um, uh, pr- uh, respecting an establishment of religion, uh, which is typically used to um, mean uh, there should be no uh, to bar government funding or endorsing of religion, um, they has been basically eviscerated. Um, they ruled that these um, these religious activities in the public schools are protected. Um, that that religion is nothing more than speech from a certain viewpoint, and therefore these uh, religious activities in the schools are protected by the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Now, is religion nothing more than speech? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think most people recognize that religion is not more than speech, and you know who recognized that? Our founding fathers. And that's why they inserted two distinct and separate clauses in the First Amendment the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, which recognize religion as something other than speech. Um, and uh, our tax code doesn't say that religion is nothing more than speech. That's why religions have significant tax benefits, um, uh, um, parsonage exemptions, um, and other kinds of uh, financial benefits that other forms of speech don't have. Um, our legal code doesn't see religion as nothing more than speech, and that's why uh, religious groups... Um, uh, don't have to abide by the same anti-discrimination laws, for instance, uh, that other uh, for-profit and non-profit groups do. And, uh, you know, more to the point, religions are free to preach the kind of doctrines such as the idea that, you know, same-sex relationships are a so-called abomination, um, which rightly keep them free of government institutions. But in this particular case, 2001, uh, Good News Club versus Milford Central School. It was a divided decision, by the way. The courts did rule that, you know, it was convenient for the majority, Scalia and Thomas, et cetera, to say that uh, religion is not not really religion at all. It's just speech. And therefore, um, it's opened the doors to this form of uh, religious activity in the public schools. Now, I think, of course, people are entitled to their religion. They have a right to practice it. But they're not entitled to a government institution in the form of the public schools to which to promote it. It's a heavy government subsidy and it's basically uh, conflating the idea of the public education with a particular form of religion and it's had dire consequences in our public schools.
0: You said that uh, public schools were originally created to keep these problems kind of out of this, um, you know, public discourse. Because there were so many different religions and so much variety um in america why well, right in,
1: in the very beginning yeah. of the public schools um you know it's, in the very beginning of our country um schools were community run or privately run and therefore often ruled by the particular Protestant denomination that uh that community uh sort of belonged to. but as soon as public funds began to be used um to uh you know uh for for education. Uh, what form of uh, the Protestant religion was a matter of great controversy? Congregationalists quickly um, tried to take control of the public schools and um, uh, episcopalians and and lutherans and um, other groups uh sort of fought back. They were very unhappy with this mm-hmm. situation and there 's a law in the book actually dating from eighteen twenty seven which says that the public funds cannot be used to uh, buy purchase textbooks. That fail any, uh, I'm sorry, that favor any particular sectarian agenda. Now, back then they were talking about sort of pan sectarianism within the Protestant agenda, but let's remember, I mean, that was, um, people fought wars over, uh, Protestant sectarianism back then. I mean, this was no, this was no easy matter. Um, so, um, uh, at, at, there was some, you know, obviously there was prayer in the public schools at that point, but it was very kind of watered down, uh, uh, Horace Mann, who founded the public schools, was himself he had uh converted from Calvinism to a kind of uh, Unitarianism, mm-hmm. so he sort of saw this as a kind of you know universal um values which were would not offend any particular sectarian sensibility now that proved workable in our country uh for some time until Catholics started to immigrate in large numbers mm-hmm. and then um then it was, you know, all heck a loose. <laughs> I mean, people fought and died in the streets over this issue. Um, in, uh, Philadelphia, a uh, couple of dozen people, uh, were slaughtered, uh, over fights about whether, um the, uh, you know, uh, Catholics being barred from, uh, teaching their form of religion in the public schools and using their Bible and their form of the, the command, ten command- the commandments. And uh, uh, in Boston, a uh, little boy, uh, Thomas Wall, was uh, told by his priest not to read from the Protestant Bible. Mm-hmm. And so when he was ordered to do so by his teachers, he uh, refused. He was beaten for 30 minutes. And the next day, 400 of his schoolmates walked out of the school in protest and in support of him. And uh, as a result of this uh, situation, um, and some others that were very similar to it, Catholics, at no small expense, decided to start their own uh, system of um, parochial education. Lutherans had done the same because they didn't like the form of, uh, of uh, the Protestant faith that was being taught in the public schools, and they wanted to establish schools where their children could kind of be um, tutored in, in their particular form of faith. And so you you see over um, throughout our history that even when the majority of uh, Children attending schools were Christian of one denomination or another. The role of religion has always been heavily contentious, and now, of course, we have, you know, so many different faiths in our country and people of no faith at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think, um, you know, most people have arrived at the very sensible conclusion that public schools should be nonsectarian, which is to say, they neither favor nor disfavor any particular form of the faith. And for that, you know, by doing that, we keep the public schools, you know, safe places and welcome places for all.
0: You mentioned earlier um, about textbooks. Uh, what is the deal with them? Because I thought that they were more—I um, guess that there are more of a variety of them—but you said that most of them are actually made in Texas.
1: No, the, the, the textbooks aren't made in Texas, but textbook mm-hmm. publishers. Um, write their textbooks to conform to the standards of the largest purchasers of textbooks. And the three largest purchasers have typically been California, uh, Florida, and Texas. Now, right now, uh, California and Florida don't have money to purchase new textbooks. They're uh, suffering uh, terrible budget cuts uh, their education system. So Texas is currently the largest purchaser of textbooks, and um, so textbook publishers are writing their they want to write their textbooks to conform to the standards of Texas so that Texas will purchase their textbooks and um, and that so what happens in Texas doesn't end up staying in Texas. And the Texas State Board of Education has been dominated by a far right faction that has a very particular religious and political agenda. And so I attended the hearings of the State Board of Education Um, uh, around text, uh, textbook curricula to sort of watch and see what kind of standards they were trying to push through and that, um, standards that were going to be, you know, taught through the, you know, for the rest of the country as well. And what I saw is that the, um, far right faction made, um, so many changes in the areas of the, of, um, the, of social studies and, and history. And each uh you know, change. I'll give you a couple of examples. They demoted Thomas Jefferson and people like him who were not Orthodox members of uh or, orthodox believers in uh uh in uh, of Christianity um and of uh they rejected a motion to sort of teach uh the separation of church and state. They changed the name of uh every time the word democracy is mentioned, it was changed to Constitutional Republic. They mandated teaching people like Phyllis Schlafly and the NR and William F. Buckley or organizations like the NRA, they kind of reconfigured the social studies curriculum and the uh, history curriculum with a kind of uh, Christian, you know, they tried to uh, uh, impose a kind of Christian nationalist um, slant on the the teaching of history, and they tried to impose a kind of, um, and they did succeed in imposing a kind of, um, political slant on um, the teaching of um, history and the social studies. And uh, each particular change they made wasn't itself like um, so horrible, but there were so many of them, it was sort of like death by a thousand paper cuts. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Um, and you said also that they, for example, they, they they try to, you know, rewrite history and along that same vein, they try to kind of make it seem um, in their Curriculum, I guess. Um, well, it's not their curriculum, but in their in their views, that the state and church separation doesn't actually exist. That it's been um, exaggerated by liberals.
1: Well, there, this you know, this sort of far right faction, then uh, other people they represent really don't believe uh, in the separation of church and state. They would like to um, ignore. Uh, the letter from the Danbury Baptists, for instance, to Thomas Jefferson, they, you know, they, they would like to, uh, demote, they, they, in order for them to believe that the separation of church and state doesn't exist, they have to basically ignore many of our founding fathers, uh, uh, demote them. They have to demote people like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and, um, Benjamin Franklin, uh, and, uh, certain, um uh, writings by, you know, even George Washington. And of course they have to completely ignore people like, um Ethan Allen and Thomas Young um who were so instrumental in the sort of philosophical origins of the American Revolution because those people uh did not want to establish America as a Christian nation but they were adamant that America's government should be secular um and of course they want to elevate um anyone they can find uh who uh took a more orthodox view of uh the Christian faith um and look the fact is our country was founded by a diverse group of people who had diverse approaches toward um religion, but what they did is that they established america as a as a secular as a secular nation and not um they they explicitly um uh uh didn't want the establishment of of, of a, a religious uh a, a religious government and uh, the far right uh faction of the board uh you know in order to kind of um, promote their agenda, they they would like to you know ignore those those facts of American history.
0: What what is the role of school vouchers in all of this? How does how does school vouchers help their agenda?
1: Um, school vouchers uh, siphon money from the public education system and divert it to private schools, many of which are religious. And it's been shown that many of the schools that the voucher money, that tax money is now funding, um, they use textbooks from organizations like Bob Jones University and IBECA, they promote creationism, um, they teach something called biblical math, um, they uh, promote um, very disrespectful attitudes towards people of other faiths, and they also promote a kind of Christian nationalist version of American history. Um, now, you know, vouchers are called, um, you know, part of the school... Choice movement. Now, choice is a word that we all like. Uh, Progressives and liberals especially like it. Uh, We all want to believe that we have choices, and we all like the idea of parents having a say in their children's education. But um, the problem is, school vouchers do siphon money from the public school system, thereby weakening it. And also, they end up funding—they end up going to, you know, fund um, religious establishments, which I believe is a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment.
0: When you did this research, you attended a lot of conferences and you spent a lot of time with these people. Um, mm-hmm. Was it difficult to go by unnoticed? Or, I mean, did you go by unnoticed? Did they know that you were not one of them? Like, was that well, strange? Them?
1: I mean, you know, when people would ask me um, what church I belonged to, I would tell them truthfully that my family is affiliated with an Episcopalian church because I did send both of my children to an Episcopalian preschool, and my son was attending the preschool at that time um is a really great great little school um but um I mean, I just went places where people are allowed to go i mean people just you know i mean they you know just you know people make a lot of assumptions I just sat in the audience with everybody else, and you know um uh you know, I, I didn't need to, uh, announce myself as a non-believer because frankly I think there's a, a diversity of approach to belief, uh, within any of these organizations. I think there are a lot of people who are constantly questioning their faith or not really believing even though they're attending these churches. So, sure I wasn't the only non-believer in the audience, but, um, uh, you know, uh, or non-subscriber to their particular theology. Right. But, um, I, you know, I just want places where people are allowed to go and, um, and And watched um what was happening, and it was really interesting. I mean, some of the stuff i just uh some stuff I just qu- couldn't quite believe I had to tape tape record everything um so that I could go back and is this really what I'm hearing and um you know of course, have the book uh fact checked and everything else.
0: Wow, yeah, um, is there anything that that you saw um in these different schools, and i guess in in your children's school um with parents fighting back like did that work at all?
1: Unfortunately, um, what happens when a good news club I write about this in my book when a good news club comes to a diverse community um and parents get upset, it just creates tremendous division within that community. um I have a chapter about. Uh, community in Loyal Heights, Seattle, where Good News Club arrived, and a lot of parents were very upset about it. Some of them are religious, some of them are Christian, some of them are Buddhist, some Jewish, some not religious, some Catholic. Uh, this sort of coalition of parents who really didn't like it at all, and they were very upset about this. And uh, they were not able to keep the Good News Club out of their public school. They were able to, in some ways, kind of limit the scope of their activities and limit the place that they were you know uh, but when i went when i visited loyal heights can i tell you i went to the i went there to see the good news club in action and um all the clubs after school were meeting in the big um uh, lunchroom uh where all the clubs meet right after school you know um and the good news you know all the kids science club there's an art club good news clubs there they have laid out i cannot tell you the volume of sugar on the table I mean, all the kids in the entire room looking like, oh my gosh, these kids are getting double stuffed Oreos and chocolate chip cookies and gummy worms and, you know, and candy and and Capri Sun coolers and, I mean, it was just unbelievable. They really make this uh, table look incredibly attractive to little kids. What do little kids like? Little kids like candy, you know? <laughs> I mean, frankly, I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I'm not one of those anti-sugar moms, but I, I, you know, I try and keep it at a minimum, but there was no restraint at this table, I mean, it's this table is completely laden with treats. And, uh, so they really make it attractive to other kids. All the kids could kind of see that, that, you know, and, and that seems to me to be part of the manipulation of children. You yeah. know, you know, try and get them in with candy and treats and then tell them that, you know, they're going to go to hell unless they subscribe to a particular, uh, you know, religious, uh, uh ideology.
0: Yeah, um, it's interesting. You mentioned something called the 414 Window. Could you just tell us what that is? When I
1: was um, doing my research and going to uh, festivals of missionaries, I discovered something called the 414 Window. It's um, uh, uh, the title of a book written by uh, one of the high-level thinkers in the mission world. His name is Luis Bush. And um, some years ago, he came up with, um, a strategy called the ten forty window. Now ten forty was the between you know ten and forty north longitude, that part of the globe where the most they call them unreached people groups live. Um, sort of swaths of Africa and the Middle East. And um, he's a kind of high level thinker in that world of of of, of evangelical mission. And he said we get to focus on the 1040 window. So hundreds, thousands of um of uh missionaries were dispatched to that part of the world to establish evangelical churches and convert those, quote, unreached people groups. Now, in 2009, he sort of switched focus. He said, it's not about the 10-40 uh, window anymore. It's about the 4-14 window, meaning children between the ages of 4 and 14. Um, and um, he actually uh, has graphs in his book to show that that's the age at which most children are likely to establish their religious beliefs or to be, you know, convertible. Uh, to any religion, um, and I want to read you something from his book. I have it right here. Um, okay. this, uh, in, for this is actually by Dr. West Stafford, who is another high-level uh, mission, who wrote um, the introduction to his book. Um, he wrote, Every major movement in history has grasped the need to target the next generation in order to advance its agenda and secure its legacy into the future. Political movements like Nazism and Communism trained legions of children with the goal of carrying their agenda beyond the lifetimes of their founders. Okay, world religions have done the same with the systematic indoctrination of their young. Even the Taliban places great emphasis on recruiting children. Um, and then he writes, "We have a need for a great awakening. Part two: a transformed worldview that understands that when it comes to children, we miss envision beyond our typical three-year plans." If we set our ministry sites on children at this watershed moment, the next century of missions will be revolutionized, and then he ends that may God inspire you to join us in his battle for the little ones so that's really interesting. they're kind of announcing this is a new focus for us. We are going to join in the battle for the little ones, and then he compares um this efforts, of course, mentioning the Taliban and communism and nazism so i thought that was pretty interesting
0: wow yeah it's like there's a little bit of, of paranoia there as well
1: i don't know if it's paranoia i think it's very smart i mean it's really yeah. true look my kids i have a five-year-old he will do anything for a cupcake and he believes in the Tooth <laughs> you know kids yeah. are very yeah. gullible they're very um they're very um easily frightened you know yeah. I mean, yeah. I took my my kids to see uh, fireworks last night for July 4th. My little one was scared, you know. So you tell them about monsters and demons; it's terrifying to them, and uh, and 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 you can use candy to manipulate them, and um, and that, and they understand that kids at this age are very vulnerable. They're like little sponges, and that's why they're so intent on getting into the public schools so they can convert other people's children while they still have a chance.
0: Wow. Yeah. Um is there any hope for the future? Is there anything that we can do or do you think it's just getting worse and worse?
1: Well, I I think the situation is snowballing unfortunately. When I started working on this project, there were four um good news clubs in public schools in Santa Barbara and today there are 11, but there's a lot um that we can do. I mean, I think first we can't begin to think about solutions to our challenges and people, until people know about those challenges. So it's important to educate ourselves about what's happening in our public schools. And it's very important to educate other people about this movement in our midst. Second, I think we need to pursue a judicial strategy uh, from a progressive position aimed at reestablishing some of the basic principles of constitutional law. Um, I think courts should be uh, required to make the better distinction between speech and worship, which is um, what the um, Good News Club decision sort of compressed. Um, and said that worship is just the same thing as speech from a certain viewpoint. And we all know religion isn't just speech, and I've kind of outlined some of the reasons why you know, our founding fathers didn't think so either. Um, there, our Constitution recognizes that religion is something other than speech, so does our tax code. Um, and look, the cumulative effect of this new legal theory that religion is just speech from a certain point of view is to force schools and other institutions to provide a state-subsidized platform the dissemination of religious beliefs and that is just wrong. Mm-hmm. I would like to see uh, also, I would like to see courts recognize the coercive aspects of religious activities in the schools. Um, and then finally, I think school boards and districts can take really proactive steps to establish policies and guidelines that ensure fair access to school resources without compromising their, their obligation of the obligation of the schools to respect the religious diversity and differences in our society and the secular nature of our government institutions.
0: Um, well, we've taken up enough of your time. Catherine, thank you so much for being on. It's really, really been a nice.
1: pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so
0: much. You have been listening to an interview with Catherine Stewart, author of The Good News Club, the Christian Rights Stealth Assault on America's Children. This is your hostess, Annie Sebukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism.